Thanks for downloading today's UW Alumni Voices podcast. I'm your host, Josh Van Camp, and today we're talking about No More Bad Leaders with Dr. Dario Kratt. Dario, how are you doing? I'm good, Josh. How are you? Very well. Now, after completing your PhD at the UWA Business School, uh, you're able to secure a postdoctoral research fellow position at the UWA School of Psychological Science. You led a research project investigating recruitment, retention, and well-being among emergency service volunteers in WA. So what did your research uncover? So that was such a fun project to work on. Uh, after, especially after being in the business school for pretty much all my life, I came into like this completely different field and a completely different research question, which is working with volunteers. And I was, well, how am I going to study these guys when I'm, all I'm used to is workplace and employees who are being paid for what they do and that's the primary motivation for them. And um, over the last three years, I've learned so much about volunteers. They're amazing, uh, especially in the emergency space. Um, and we really, our findings for that project really boil down to the team of expectations and funny enough, leadership. Uh, so with expectations, we find that a lot of people, when they start volunteering, they don't actually realize what's involved or they don't fully understand that this is not always this sort of type of heroic activity where you, you know, run into a burning house and bring a baby back. Um, but it's more tedious. It's, there's a lot of training involved in that. There's a lot of preparation and the action component is not necessarily as exciting as, you know, what it seems like. And then with leadership, what we find is that leadership matters. And this is, Trivial, but it's really important because, again, leadership has been predominantly studied in the workplace environment, and we don't really know much about, you know, leadership outside of work. Is there a big difference between leadership in the volunteer space and how people are meant to act and react to the business world? Um, so far, actually not. We sort of find that the same, you know, type of, like, leadership behaviors have similar effects across, you know, volunteers and employees. So it seems that, you know, it's fairly universal um, what, what people expect from leaders. So we show that there are some age differences in volunteer sample. So for instance, that younger volunteers prefer what we call this more inclusive leadership, leaders who are actually asking for their opinion and involving them in decision-making. And older volunteers, among, um, you know, among our sample seem to prefer a bit more command and control type of leadership. Interesting. But that might be very specific to this particular type of service because it is emergency service. Well, I think it's also maybe it's an educational opportunity for the people because they do want to, to learn. So they are, I guess, that opportunity to be educated through that that role. I'm curious with people's expectations as well when they're going into these vol- that volunteer role. So why were they expecting to be the hero? Well, I think it's because, you know, when we, you, you think about emergency, like what, what type of stuff do you think about? And it's also like the messages that we get around it. So like the things you see on TV, for instance, is, you know, firefighters fighting, you know, these huge fires mm. or SES volunteers, you know, being in the middle of the storm or the flood and, or, you know, or descending down these huge, you know, man- mountains in Karangini to save someone. Yeah. And I think when people see that on TV, they say, oh, that's, that looks really cool. I want to mm-hmm. do that. And then they come in and they realize, well, first of all, you need to get six months worth of training before you're even allowed to do that. 
and there's obvious reason for that. But it's also that those type of call-outs don't actually happen that often, which is a really good thing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of a little bit disappointing for some people because they want to spring into action and then they realize, well, maybe this is not, not, you know, this is not what I expected. Um, so it's really important. What we show, it's really important to clarify those expectations in that early recruitment process. And also show that there's so much more that you get out of volunteering than just being, you know, an action-based hero. Is it hard being a volunteer for the emergency services? I am not one, so I don't know. Uh, I think it really depends on, on, on you know, personalities. Mm. I think a lot of volunteers that I've spoken to and I've had have been very fortunate to travel everywhere across Western Australia to talk to these people. They are amazing in what they do for their communities. And I don't think they see it as something hard, but rather something really rewarding that actually well, benefits them as well. When you go into to these type of research projects, are you going in with any form of expectations? Oh, good question, Josh. <laughs> I Look, I, I will be honest, before I started this project, I had no idea. Like, I literally had no idea. Also, probably... Um, by the virtue of the fact that I am from Europe. So, you know, I had no idea about how this whole emergency volunteering space works in Australia. I've never really been interested in that. So when I came in, I think I was a fairly clean state. Hmm. And so I've, I've learned a lot. But yeah, obviously, you know, you would have some of your own preconceived ideas as a researcher. So what about, what did you learn about yourself as a leader leading this project? Oh, <laughs> I've learned that, Leading peers is probably one of the worst situations for a leader. So I had, a I had to manage a team of researchers. We were five in the core team, and it was up to me to like manage other uh, researchers on the team. But they are my peers, so I can't really, I can't tell them what to do. I can try to influence them in sort of these soft ways. Um, and they're all very busy, obviously. And then we also had a huge group of stakeholders, which is representatives of emergency agencies from across Australia and New Zealand. And again, these are very busy people who I have no power over, so, but I need to convince them to collaborate with us and work with us. So yeah, so that was, that was, a, yeah, that was a really big challenge for me as a leader. I much rather prefer having a, you know, a formal power position. <laughs> How did you influence the, you know, those key stakeholders to be involved? I guess it's all around showing the benefit for them where they can learn more about, you know, how to better manage their volunteers and how to increase the retention rates and recruitment rates. So yeah. as far as we could show the applied value of what we're doing, that's where we got people on board. Now let's talk about your current research because your research is on the self-identity of leadership influences behaviors. So what are the two different types of identities you focus on and why? So my research looks into the self-perception as a leader uh, or leader identity. And initially when I started this line of research, which would be uh, nearly 10 years now, I only focused on what I call an explicit identity. And basically explicit identity is what you think about yourself when you actually think about it. Now, it sounds a little bit funny, but it's that conscious processing. So when you actually consciously reflect, you know, who am I? What am I doing? 
and then extend that to the leadership domain, I said, well, I feel like that I am a leader. So we tested a variety of models with that explicit identity. And we actually show that it relates to different types of leadership behaviors. It also relates to leadership effectiveness, which was a really great finding. But then as I was working on this, I said, well, there's this missing part in there, which is our you know, processing, our thinking is not all conscious and deliberate. There's this huge part of our um, cognition, which is actually um, implicit. It's subconscious. And we have no um, real conscious control over what happens like deep down inside our brains. So that's where I started to look at the ways of how I could tap into that implicit cognition because you can't really just ask people about it because that then activates the explicit processing. And I've adapted this uh, really funny, uh, very simple test which was originally developed in 1980s in the US to measure uh, gender and racial stereotypes. So again, because they are implicit, because if you ask explicitly, are you, you know, prejudiced, of course, you know, everyone is gonna say, of course I'm not. But if you tap into the implicit, that's where they really actually come out. So we've adapted that test and we, were, we found a way to actually assess that implicit, uh, implicit um, leader identity. So then now uh, what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to then see if there's, there are differences in how the implicit versus the explicit influences on leader behaviors. How did you come across that test in the USA? It's a fairly well-known one. It's an implicit association test. It's actually a really fun test. You can do it online. Anyone can do it online. And there's a range of them developed now. So for gender, for race, for, I think they even have one on science attitudes. So with their hard sciences versus soft sciences. Uh, so I actually advise anyone to go and do it because the results will shock you, I can guarantee you. Because so even for me, when I did it, I was like, of course I'm not prejudiced. And then I was like, oh, okay. So <laughs> yeah. is, it, is it a quite confronting test to take? Yeah, because yeah, you, you look at your results and you're like, I would have never thought that I actually like implicitly that's that's actually what I, you know what my thoughts are. So when you saw the results, did you automatically change your mindset, uh, your, your thinking? Like how, how do you re, how does one react? And that's adapt? like that's a really hard part, right? Because you can't again you can't consciously change your implicit beliefs, so you can't actually make yourself to change that. Mm. So some of the ways that the literature has shown us that can work is that it takes, well, first of all, it takes a really long time to change the implicit beliefs. Second part is that uh, what they suggest would work is constant exposure to examples that are opposed to your implicit beliefs. Hmm. So for example, say that, you know, with, um, with science, it's a good example. So, the idea of that test is that people will stereotypically associate social sciences with as, as something that females do, so more female uh, type of science, and the hard science such as physics and math as more something that males do. So it's a gender perception of you know science. And so I I did that test, and I'll admit that I actually it showed that I have prejudice, even though I am a scientist myself. 
I have prejudice in a way that I associate hard sciences with male maleness. Wow. Right? So it's like, wow. Like I've been doing this for so long and even I am still, you know, to have those stereotypes. So say so what I could do to, to confront, to work with that and confront myself is to constantly seek out examples of successful female scientists in the, you know, in what I think is a male, male world. So like physicists, um, bi biologists, mm -hmm. all, all astronomers, and I actually do, now that I think about it, I actually do. I follow a bunch of really cool STEM female scientists on Twitter. And that helps me to constantly like get that new information. And so over time, that new information hopefully will be incorporated into my beliefs and my beliefs will change. So what inspired you to focus on research leadership behaviors? Um, with leadership, I think... Um, I, I, I trace it back to pretty early days when I was still doing masters and I was teaching um, a leadership class and I remember it, it was quite, quite interesting experience. I remember we were sitting around with students. It was a fairly small group and, and all of these students are postgrads and they're, you know, doing this management postgrad degree and taking the leadership class and they're preparing to go out into the workplace and, you know, and potentially take those, you know, entry-level management positions. And I asked them, so do you guys feel like leaders? And I think what, what really shocked me is that most of them said no. And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. You're sort of training to be, you know, future leaders mm. and you are going to go into the workplace and become leaders. So why is it that you don't think you are a leader? And that led me on this whole journey of discovering that leader identity is a thing and how it works and how we can actually train it and develop it over time. Um, yeah. Because that was quite a few years ago, though. Yeah. That yeah. Was, yeah. <laughs> so you've been thinking about this for so long. That's, that's amazing. Because yeah. um, many people have different definitions, interpretations of, of leadership, and your class there definitely would have had that. So what does leadership mean to you? That's a really tough question, actually. I, was, I would say probably my definition of leadership changes over time because uh, I, yeah, I don't really see it as one thing. And I think one of the main issues uh, we see out there in the world is that people will have a very specific definition of leadership and they will fight to you know, defi define it and defend it. And that doesn't really help. I think what's important when you think about leadership is that it's different for different people, like you said, and people react to different leaders differently and people need different things from their leaders at different stages. So even maintaining the same sort of leadership behavior or leadership approach over time is not going to be beneficial because the circumstances change, the context changes like we're experiencing right now and being flexible and being adaptable is probably at the core of, for me, what it means to be a good leader. Does, do we fall into that trap of like maybe labeling or putting a face to leadership and I'll give an example, like, you know, the current and past US president. So people would go, Barack Obama, great leader. And then you put Donald Trump, poor leader. Are, are we, is it quite short-sighted of us putting a label and a face to leadership? 
Yeah, I think it's another big issue is that, you know, you, you mentioned now when you were saying, you were saying, oh, someone is a good leader and someone is a bad leader. And I think it's not actually the case that uh, you can always sort of put those labels on people. So inevitably, I, I always say we're all humans. We all behave in ways that are good and the ways that are bad. So we can do, we can do both, right? We go from one, one state to another. And the recent literature on, there is literature on dis, destructive leadership, right? So the, the bad, you could say the bad leadership, destructive. And what they point out is that really, in order to really judge someone to be a bad leader, you would need to have a very long-term view. So years later, looking at the legacy of someone and really seeing all the ripple effects, that's where you maybe can sit down and say, you know what, overall, this particular person has not been very effective or, or very good. Can we take this into the workplace where, you know, maybe yourself, you've had a bossy leader in the past and other people that have maybe a poor director or a manager and years down the track, they go, oh, wow, that individual has really impacted on me Mm. in a positive and negative light. Yeah, I think I actually have a story. I've realized recently when I was thinking about this that I myself was a bossy leader (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, and this kind of illustrates my point. Like, um, I don't think I'm a bad leader overall. I think I've had my moments where I was learning how to lead and that led me to maybe do something that wasn't ideal. But actually what happened is that, um, you know, I was, I, was, I was in a like a management trainee program and this is years ago now. And I only had one episode where, I, you know, I was super stressed and I ended up sort of yelling at the uh, employee in front of others. And it wasn't even just really yelling. It was just like a, maybe like a, a comment that wasn't necessarily very nice about, you know, their work. And, and, you know, I've done so well in that program. I've been in that management training program for like months. I've done so well. I had these, these great reviews. They were saying about how, you know, I'm doing so well and I've, you know, delivered on all my other performance you know indicators and only because of that one little thing i was actually nearly thrown out of the program wow and i was uh, i was sent off to like this subsidiary which was the you know super far from my home so i had to travel for like three hours one way and it's almost like felt like they like they you know they couldn't like quite dismiss me but they made it you know they they made the circumstances in a way that they kind of pushed me aside so that i would quit myself and when I look at this now, like years, years later, and it doesn't really matter anymore because I've moved on so, so much from it. But I'm like, really? Just because, you know, this one moment I showed something that wasn't, you know, like ideal behavior or wasn't, you know, and I regret it. But you really define everything else I've done just because of that one incident. And I think that's, you know, we're like maybe reflecting on who is a bad boss or a good boss in our workplace. Maybe people can think a little bit more around like the bigger picture around that. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote where people, you know, when it comes to leadership, you know, don't judge me at my best, but don't judge me at my worst. And it seems like you were judged in a very small period of time yeah. at your, your worst. And yeah. you've been kind of, they labeled you. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's why I, you know, I fight, uh, 
quite a bit against these labels of you know good leadership, uh, bad leadership, uh, and also the like a really strict definitions of leadership as such. Well, not only that, I mean, even in the lead up to this podcast where I would refer to, you know, leadership styles and you're like, no, 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 refer to as behaviours. So things like that, does it frustrate you that people can't even get that right? Um, I think there's, I think it's more around the confusion of, you know, what constitutes a style versus what constitutes a behaviour. So I think the styles in their orientation are get a bit more fixed. So it kind of is a, a, a it kind of presupposes what, what a style will look like and kind of assumes that the leader with a particular style will always act in the same way. Yeah. Versus when we just talk about behaviors, it's broad enough to assume that people can have engaged in, can engage in different kinds of behaviors. Um, but, you know, there's literature on leadership styles. It's fairly prescriptive. It sort of goes something like, if, you know, if this happens, do this. Mm. If that happens, do that. I think maybe it's a little bit of a limiting approach. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that is really good segue to my next question because I want to talk around about the employee side of stuff because when it comes to leadership, do, do employees need to learn how to adapt rather than react to certain leadership behaviors as well? And this brings me to the next really important point about leadership is that when we talk about leadership, all we talk about is leaders, leaders, and leaders. What we really need to talk about is followers and the relationship that they form with leaders. And I think this is such a big gap in, you know, everything uh, in the research, in practice, and pretty much everything you see out there on leadership. So when, uh, you know, what I would love to see is like we have a leadership unit on this or leadership training on that or leadership workshop on this. What I would really love to see is a followership workshop or followership training or followership education. Mm. And I think some of the, um, you know, the Ivy League colleges in the US in as part of their like executive MBA programs, they actually have units on followership. Yeah, well. So recognizing the importance of that. So what the research suggests to us is that when leaders behave or act, they actually always will, in, in a way, react to the context and their followers, right? So certain, and certain followers will almost um, make leaders to act in certain ways. Mm. So it sort of it sounds, a little bit, sounds a little bit weird to people out there when I talk about this. It's like, well, are you, you know, are you potentially putting, you know, a blame or the, the load on the followers? And in a way I am in saying that, you know, you have like these people who are, who are choosing to lead, to be late or, or you know, they have some level of, you know, voluntary decision-making over that. And, and they can shape how their leader acts and behaves to a certain extent as well. So, Followers should play a much more active role in the workplace or anywhere where leadership actually happens. Have you, has the research uncovered all, you know, with followership with people from different decades? Because I feel like different age groups have probably led and followed differently. Because I think maybe the current generation are more than happy to, to question everything when maybe in the you know, 80s and 90s, you, you know, if the leader told you to do something, you, you did and you never questioned it. I think I now say that it's more around um, 
you know, the, the age sort of stages that people go through is that when sure. everyone is young, they're rebellious <laughs> and they question everything. And then yeah. when they get, you know, to their thirties, they start to settle down. And then when they get to their forties and fifties, they start to be more about, you know, sort of um, command and control yeah. as we call it. <laughs> um, I think that's probably more, more the case. The literature on followership that I've been recently reading is they, you know, it, it proposes the evolutionary mm. approach to followership. And that basically has examples from, you know, before like thousands of years ago, which is still relevant <laughs> today. So I don't know if we can talk about, you know, that much of age, you know, age or generational differences and more just the, you know, the context of different dynamics of different factors. Now, let's talk about your research on leader identity and its influence on leadership because it's made the national finals of FameLab. It's the science communication competition uh, broadcast online for the first time this year. It invites viewers to watch Australia's brightest minds discuss their STEM-focused research in three minutes or less and vote for your favourite topic. So can you share with the audience the importance, not only for you, but for researchers having the platform and ability to share and communicate the impact of their research? I think it's really, really important. I think it's one of the, you know, one of the, things that we often forget as researchers is that we're not doing this for ourselves or for you know a limited limited group of other researchers we're in the end of the day we're doing this for for advancing the knowledge and 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 bettering you know people out there um and society in all different ways uh and i think being able to share these ideas in in a in a in a forum that is well set up and 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 is respected and is supported by you know an institution such as uh, the foundation for uh, WM Museum uh, which sort of brings that little bit of that respect and legitimacy to this uh, I think that's really important and um, you know I, I would love for my research to have more impact and I think that's something that potentially my PhD training well didn't focus on at all I you know I have to learn all of these skills pretty much from scratch and myself now that I'm already um, in uh, you know lecturer's position but I I think everyone should get out there it's super scary it's super uncomfortable trying to translate your um, academic jargon in a way that can actually be understood by people (laughs) is really really hard trying to narrow it down to what is my research actually about in the sense of applied value is really really hard but it, um, but it's it's a lot of fun. I, I had a lot of fun doing the Fame Lab. I think it was great. I challenged myself. I'm super proud that I was able to challenge myself. And um, you know, and now I just you know want to continue with that and find other ways to um, to spread the message and also the good research around. You talked about, I guess, the research jargon. What what was your first draft to your final draft look like? Was was there a huge difference? Oh. Uh, like the the things you know like earlier when i discussed my research idea and now i could do it pretty well because i had to go through that process but initially when i went and i started saying you know things like leader identity and you know subconscious and conscious and explicit implicit you know people just look back at me with this big round eyes it's like what are you even talking about and that's where i had to think okay well what what you know what's known in this space and then it's like cool okay yeah, people know about stereotypes so this is sort of similar to what i'm trying to do so why don't i extend that um metaphor to talk to, to talk about what i'm doing so and i feel like i feel like still a lot of people are confused but it's getting there 
So with the, you know, FameLab provided that this opportunity to be able to showcase what you do, is this something now that are you empowered to kind of own your research and, and take it out there to promote it to maybe the media and get your voice out there more? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think I've, you know, I've always been interested in uh, spreading, you know, the word about my research. And I think that the project with volunteers that I've done actually really helped with that because I had to work with those industry stakeholders and I had to justify for why we're doing this and what we're doing and how we're doing it. So now I can bring it back into sort of my own research uh, on leadership and in and think about how how I can talk about it more and what can I do uh, that will actually benefit and and, and help uh, with some of the needs that we have in this space. So, what are your research plans for the future? I um, well, I I'm thinking about you know obviously developing the, the the this concept of implicit leader identity in something that is a little bit more I guess practical. Uh, relating to what we just talked about. So in a, I, I want to actually develop into a tool that can be used for assessment and for, for future training as well. And for that, obviously, there's quite a few steps, uh, but I'll, I'll be, I'll be um, looking at recruiting uh, more participants from, from the actual, you know, who are in actual leadership positions uh, and also their subordinates and, and, and collecting more data so I guess it's it's a never ending never ending process, but I really would like to have, um, I really would like to have like a tool developed that can be used for like by others. So like you know like you see like I say all sorts of assessments out there all the time, and I think that's it could could become a really uh, cool assessment for capturing those implicit beliefs, which are really as I said before like are really hard to to capture. How hard is it to develop a research project? You talked about the steps, like there's a lot that goes into it. So how long does it take for, you know, one of your research projects to, to simply get up and running and even getting that tick of approval? Um, well, just to give you an idea. So, so the research that I'm working on right now on implicit identity, um, I probably had the first, like the first early idea, the conception of it about five or six years ago. Uh, you know, so I kind of, wow. I didn't really actively work on it for five or six years, but I had like a first, a very vague idea about mm. this is something that, you know, we need to do. You know, then probably about two years ago, I started like really looking into it a little bit more and trying to figure out what and how and what what we could do, how we could measure it. I started looking up other implicit tests and all of that. So now we're sort of at the stage where we uh, have collected, I think three, we've conducted three different studies, uh, all sort of uh, around uh, developing the actual measure or the actual tool. Uh, and so now it's probably time to start writing papers um, and, and putting it, you know, publish it. So, at least another couple of years, I think. It's a long time. <laughs> and, and you're also a working mum as, as well, you know. You, yeah. You've got a beautiful one-year-old son. How hard is it being a working mum as well as a researcher? Um, well, look, it's, not, it's definitely not easy. I would say it's probably not as hard as I expected it to be. I actually quite enjoy having, you know, different things in my life. So... Um, um, to to have work 
that, you know, provides me with that intellectual stimulation um, and, you know, ability to achieve something in my professional domain and be recognized, but then at the same time to also have like this personal life with, and, um, and, you know, teach my one-year-old some critical thinking skills, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully down the track. <laughs> yeah, is your, is your son going to be a future leader? Oh, absolutely, yeah. No he already is. He's the bossy. <laughs> he's the bossiest baby I've seen. I'm actually learning a lot from him on leadership already. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's very bossy. I think children, children are so. Uh, that's another thing. As a, I think, as a as a researcher, um, you know, and I've heard this from other researchers. When you become a parent. This innate curiosity you have about things, right? When you look at your child and you start tracking their development, mm. it's just amazing. It's like, it's, yeah, it's incredible. Like looking at him and how he just learns and what he learns. And, and yeah, it's just, I feel like it's, it's, it's been one of the greatest, you know, research projects, even though it's not a research <laughs> project, but it's been one of the greatest projects in my life. And I think, yeah, we, we can learn a lot from kids about leadership. I think they have this natural style, uh, you know, which is not clouded by all the social expectations. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, it's great. Now, this last question, if, if people listen to this and wonder how they can improve their leadership style, are there five tips you'd give them? Yeah. So, um, so first, uh, I'll say fake it till you make it. Uh, and it's, and it's, and I'll elaborate a little bit more. So what I mean by that is don't fake it in a sense of, you know, engage in behaviors that are not natural to you or that, you know, you really feel is not you. It is important to do something that aligns with your inner self. But what I mean by this is, I guess, more of a confidence, you know, put confidence into what you're doing and act as a leader. Because my research shows that if you act like a leader, then you'll become one. Yeah. Uh, the second one uh, is related, and that's really probably start with understanding what leadership means to you. So we spoke about earlier about how people have different definitions of leadership. And that variety is really beautiful and that's really important, but you need to understand what is it that you actually stand for as a leader and then build on that to develop those behaviors. The third one is be careful about the training or development that you choose. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of books, a lot of programs, a lot of articles, really, you know, uh, think critically about what is being offered. What, the, what are the results that are being offered to you? So, Say, like, if someone offers you to make a leader in two hours, probably not a good idea. Um, the fourth is be aware of which stage of your leadership journey you are. And what I mean by that is that we show that, you know, people who are just starting, are the emergent leaders, they will differ in their needs and approaches from people who are more experienced. We also find that the leaders who are more experienced are a bit more settled in their ways. So it's actually harder for them to change things about how they lead. And then finally, and again, what we spoke about before is start by being a good follower. And that will, you know, help you to develop your own leadership, but also will help your leader to become better as well. Perfect. Awesome. Now, Dr. Grant, that's all the time we've got. But if people want to find out more about you, connect with you, find out more about your research, where should they visit? I do have a LinkedIn page. 
that I am currently reviving in, um, in uh, after I participated in FameLab. FameLab, I've decided that I want to do more. So I actually set myself a challenge of posting at least a couple of times a week on my LinkedIn. And what I post about is research, not necessarily just mine, but good research from the field of leadership. So that's probably a first place to go and, and see more about what I do and also follow my updates. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Learn a ton. I know everyone else would have, but look forward to seeing your future research projects and your future leader. Well, I guess your son is a future leader as well. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Josh. There may be less coffee ketchup, hugs or high five but we are still part of the global UWA community and we have a role to play. The UWA alumni community is committed to helping all our staff, students and graduates through this COVID-19 crisis. You can help by making a donation, send a message of support, become a mentor, ambassador, give pro bono advice or simply checking in with our fellow UWA graduate. Let's all do our part and help our global UWA community.